Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. We do not have a criminal justice system. There is no justice in it. In our land of the free, more people are incarcerated than anywhere else in the world. Half the people in our prisons and jails are incarcerated for nonviolent crime, and one in seven are serving life for virtual life sentences. The legislature has encroached on the judicial function and imposed strict mandatory minimums. Our Sixth Amendment right is now in effect a penalty, and the threat of draconian mandatory minimums has resulted in over 90% of people accepting plea bargains. We deny needed aid to release prisoners, impose onerous parole requirements, and have legalized the discrimination of people with felony convictions. These collateral consequences ensure that invisible bars follow people with felony convictions throughout their lives, demote them to second-class citizens, and encourage recidivism. It's time to discard these ineffective and cruel laws and move from a system based on retribution to one focused on rehabilitation and reintegration. I spoke to Nazgul Gandnush, Senior Research Analyst at the Sentencing Project, an organization dedicated to making our criminal law system a criminal justice system for over 30 years on these issues and more. Welcome to Gravity, Nazgul. Thank you very much. Great to be here. The Sentencing Project was founded in 1986 and is a leader in research campaigns and advocacy for policy reform for a fairer criminal law system with alternatives to incarceration, such that it can rightly be called a criminal justice system, a name that currently at best is severely misleading for the current criminal law system that we have. May you please tell our audience more about your work at the Sentencing Project? Sure. So we're based in Washington, D.C., and we are a group that's focused on both research and advocacy. So I work on the research end, and with my colleagues, uh, we produce reports that synthesize the work that academic researchers have done, and we produce our own original research looking at trends in incarceration, um, highlighting reforms that are taking place. So help making sure that people know both the good and the bad news in criminal justice trends around the country. Um, and on the advocacy side, my colleagues uh, work directly with grassroots organizations and with policymakers um, to amplify the work, the reform efforts that are happening to reduce the prison population and reduce racial disparities and in incarceration for adults and youth as well. So we're touted as the land of the free, yet ironically, we have the highest rates of incarceration in the world. The United States shockingly incarcerates 670 individuals per 100,000 people. Rwanda is the second highest global rate, and it's way behind us at 434 individuals per 100,000 in prison. And China is seventh at 118 per 100,000. And there's been a 500% increase in the prison population over the past 40 decades. This dramatic rise in our prison population is not due to curbing crime. Violent crime has been decreasing and is about half the rate it was in 91. So what is the policy behind this rampant incarceration? Okay, well, what happened in the United States is that, uh, like other countries, crime rates started to climb in the 1970s, 80s, and 1990s. So this is uh, something that happened around the world in, uh, you know, cities became less safe. Um, a lot of countries were struggling with crime spikes and homicide rates, for example, in the United States were at their highest level in the 1990s. In response to this this problem of crime and to the problems of drug use, the United States decided to have a very tough on crime strategy of 
increasing the likelihood of imprisonment for people that were arrested and convicted and increasing sentence lengths for people that were sent to prison and, of course, dramatically escalating drug law enforcement. So sending a lot more people behind bars for um, uh, substance use disorder and for selling and using drugs. Now, other countries that also uh, experienced the same crime spike managed to just wait it out. Many other countries, for example, Canada and European countries, did not dramatically, did not increase their incarceration rates. Um, and their crime rates, just like ours, then re- fell in the, after the 1990s spike. And so, for example, right now, homicide rates in the country are about half of where they were in the 1990s, but yet levels of imprisonment in the United States are considerably higher. Um, this is not, this is something that's very unusual, really stands out as a, uh, both for the United States historically, because we have not always had such a high level of imprisonment. Um, and it also, of course, stands out, makes us stand out when you compare us to our peer countries. Other industrialized nations have a level of incarceration that's somewhere between three to nine times lower than the United States. And so right now we face a problem of figuring out how to undo mass incarceration. So now we've had 37 years of steady increase. And it seems in the past three years, we've had a steady, if trifle, national decrease in our prison population. And it appears that the greatest decreases have been in New York. And I wonder with that state, whether it has to do with the rollback of the Rockefeller laws, New Jersey and in California, but California's hand has been forced by the United States Supreme Court, which ordered California to decrease its prison population uh, because the overcrowding in the prison population's resulted in such horrible conditions for prisoners that the United States Supreme Court said that it violated the Eighth Amendment. Now, is the national decrease simply a result of it, of actually New York and New Jersey and California being such a popular state, uh, decreasing the prison population? Or are we seeing some hope for uh, a national movement towards a decreased in- incarceration rate and for uh, alternatives to incarceration and sentencing? I would say that both of those things are true. California, as such a populous state, is driving the overall trends that we see in the reduced number of people in prison. So since 2009, there's been a 6% reduction in the number of people in prisons in the United States. It's a really modest reduction, but if you think about it in the broader context of the fact that for 37 years before that, the prison population overall in the, around the country increased every single year. That still means that we are on, in a very different political climate now. Much of that reduction is driven by states like California um, and New Jersey, New York, that have reduced their prison populations by over 25%. Um, so in New Jersey, there were also some lawsuits that compelled the state to change its parole policies. In New York, there were changes to the Rockefeller drug laws, like you said, and there was a, a, a decision by the New York City Police Department to reduce felony drug arrests. That also contributed as well. Um, so these states are really national leaders in decarceration by reducing their prison populations over 25 percent. We would love to see that happening around the country. Unfortunately, Uh, We see in most states, levels of decarceration tend to be under 10%. So 
New York, New Jersey, California are states that are really leading the country in their rates of decarceration. So by over 25 percent, we would love to see the entire country moving in that direction and doing even more because we want to see um, a realization of the vision of organizations like ACLU, um, Cut 50, um, many others as well that want to reduce the prison population by 50 percent, by half. So we're not we're not we're a long way from achieving that. But um, there's good and bad news, which is that a majority of states now, 42 states, nearly all states have been reducing their prison populations, but most of them have been doing it really quite modestly by less than 10%. So while the good news is that we have a lot of elected officials now that recognize that we've overdone it when it comes to uh, drug law enforcement and realize that we're imprisoning too many people for drug offenses and take sending them away for too long. And policymakers are more willing to scale back sentencing for drug offenses and for other nonviolent crimes to some extent. Um, we really need to escalate that and expand that appetite for reform to include people convicted of violent crimes as well, because half of the state prison population is convicted of a violent offense, such as robbery or assault. You've mentioned a vast disparity in decarceration rates among states, and there's also a disparity in incarceration rates among states. Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate at 860 people per 100,000, which is far above the national average, uh, followed by Oklahoma at 700 per 100,000, followed by Alabama at 633 per 100,000 individuals. And these states are also some of our poorest. And I wonder whether the difference in the incarceration and decarceration rates that we're seeing is also linked to the poverty rate in certain states. And if not, what can we attribute this disparity in incarceration and decarceration rates to? Okay, so in terms of disparities in levels of imprisonment, we know that there are a number of factors that explain it. One of them is the the, state's willingness to direct resources to reducing levels of poverty, the the less likely a a state is to um, support food stamps, cash assistance, these kinds of programs, the more likely that state is to instead rely on imprisonment to deal with crimes that happen within especially low-income communities. Southern states tend to be more punitive. They tend to have higher levels of imprisonment. That's a factor. Um, So there are a number of reasons why uh, states in particular in the South have higher levels of imprisonment. Uh, In terms of reforms, we've seen that some of the states that I've mentioned, New York, New Jersey, California, so uh, these are states that are very often perceived as very democratic states by many measures, right? And so these are states that are leaders in reducing their prison populations. But that's not the only place that we've seen this trend towards decarceration. So we've also seen that states like South Carolina have reduced their prison populations by um, 13%. Um, Mississippi has been reducing its prison population considerably, a very high level of imprisonment, but is still making um, headway in that regard. So that I see as really a good sign that this is not, uh, you know, in the same way that it was a bipartisan partisan consensus largely to ratchet up 
um, criminal penalties um, and send a lot more people to prison for longer terms. It's a growing bipartisan consensus now to try to undo mass incarceration. Um, and so we see trends towards that, uh, towards reducing prison population around the country. A lot of policymakers in Texas, for example, are very proud of the progress that they've made in reducing levels of uh, confinement for youth and in reducing the adult prison population as well. So I'd like now to discuss the egregious racial disparity in sentencing and in our prison and jail populations across the country. This disparity is caused well before the sentencing stage as communities of color are over-policed and much more likely to be arrested as one factor. Among many, there's implicit racial bias as a factor as well. Why and how are we imprisoning communities of color at such high rates? And are we utilizing the criminal laws at our disposal to structure, in, a, in effect, a new racial caste system? Well, I would say that um, the short answer to that question is that the reason that we have such a higher level of imprisonment for communities of color compared to whites, let me quantify that, so its uh, rate of imprisonment for African Americans is five times that of whites. For Latinos, it's 1.4 times that of whites. So there's some questions about how Latinos are classified in incarceration data. So we may be potentially missing um, some of that disparity that exists. Um, so there are two answers to why there are high le higher levels of imprisonment for communities of color. And part of it has to do with differences in behavior. So uh, we have higher communities of color are more likely to live in uh, concentrated urban poverty. If you flip the script in our country and you had people of color disproportionately living in wealthier suburban neighborhoods and whites disproportionately living in um, uh, urban areas that are resource poor, uh, you would have higher rates of violent offending among whites. But you don't have that. Instead, you have what we see, which and that results in the fact that communities of color are more likely to be affected by poverty, residential segregation, and so on. And so you have higher rates of, for example, homicide offending among African Americans than you have among whites. So part of the problem is, especially when you look at the most serious crimes, um, differences in criminal activity. But another critical part of the problem is the criminal justice system itself. And you can see this, for example, if you look at um, how enforcement works for one of the lowest level offenses, marijuana usage. So um, if you look at marijuana usage rates around the country, whites and African-Americans use marijuana at almost identical rates. If you look at marijuana possession arrest rates around the country. So this is just for possession, for someone that's just carrying the drug on them rather than not trying to sell it. If you look at possession arrest rates, African-Americans are three and a half times as likely to be arrested for marijuana uh, possession than whites. So, uh, and so a lot of the, uh, you know, so the explanation for racial disparities in our criminal justice system has both of these elements in it. Uh, differences in criminal activity and the disparate uh, way that the criminal justice system treats African-Americans and Latinos in particular compared to whites. You talked about the drug use level being pretty much equivalent amongst communities of color and amongst white communities. Is there a problem here with uh, lack of private space so that when you discussed earlier that African-Americans tend to live in high-density urban areas and possibly 
their drug use is in public places and therefore more prone to arrest rather than white communities that tend to use drugs in private places away from public view. I think that what you what you were just pointing to is definitely a factor, but it's also very well documented that police officers are more likely to look for drugs on people who are uh, African-American or Latino than white. And so this is um, evident in, if you look at traffic stop data, for example, around the country now, police officers are uh, more likely to stop a driver for an investigatory reason rather than uh, for a traffic safety stop. So for example, if you're, uh, if you divide traffic stops by whether, um, by the ones where the officer almost certainly has to make the stop if someone ran a red light, if they um, are were speeding. When you look at those kinds of traffic stops, you don't see a lot of disparity in stops. But when you look at other stops where the officer has more discretion, so when they stop someone for not signaling when they change lanes, for um, when they don't give any reason for why they stop somebody, those are considered investigatory traffic stops. The, tra- the officer is suspicious for some reason of the driver. Officers are more likely to stop African-American drivers for that reason than white drivers. Once they stop them, they're more likely to search African-American drivers than white drivers. So the higher likelihood that people of color have of being stopped, frisked, searched um, compared to whites is a major explanation for uh, why we see these disparities in arrest rates and even for something as simple as drug, drug possession. I'd like to talk more about the war on drugs and drug possession. Now, why are we putting people to prison for essentially victimless crimes and even things that now are completely legal? And it's such an arbitrary distinction to say alcohol is legal and cigarettes are legal, but marijuana is not. We know that alcohol has a propensity to violent behavior that research has shown marijuana does not have. We have people that spend years in prison that have harmed nobody. What is a social good that we're trying to achieve here? The idea behind the war on drugs is to have harsh penalties for drug use and in particular for drug sales in order to reduce the number of people that are selling drugs and in order to deter people from selling drugs. Um, so reduce the number by imprisoning and incapacitating people and to reduce the number by deterring people from um, doing those kinds of things be- because they're worried about the criminal penalty of doing it. So that's the logic. Um, unfortunately, we we have known for a long time, even as these policies were getting implemented, that when you arrest someone and imprison them, put them in jail, imprison them, for selling drugs, they will easily be replaced by somebody else to sell those drugs. Um, that's just how drug the nature of demand and supply in drug markets work. There's a replacement effect where if you remove somebody from the drug chain, they'll be easily replaced. The other problem is that um, when someone has substance use disorder, uh, they are often not thinking very clearly about the consequences of their action. They're often doing things that harm the closest personal relationships that they have. And so in that kind of a mindset, in that kind of a context, threatening somebody with time in jail or prison for their activity is not a very effective deterrent because these are people that need help and they need treatment. 
So unfortunately, um, that's the approach that we've had in the United States. Only recently have we begun to expand access to um, treatment for substance use disorder by, for example, the Affordable, affordable, uh, affordable Care Act, expanding access to Medicaid so that people are able to be um, receiving treatment using their health insurance. So that is the kind of approach that we should have been using all along to realize that people need access to treatment, that we should um, direct people to uh, word public health interventions rather than criminal justice interventions. We see some of that now with the opioid crisis, where um, especially because wealthier white Americans are impacted by this issue uh, more than they had been, for example, by um, crack cocaine usage in the past. They are um, intervening and participating in the policymaking process and um, encouraging more of a public health response to this issue than a criminal justice response. So there's still plenty of um, uh, plenty of criminal sanctions on the books and plenty of movement towards um, increasing those kinds of penalties as well. You just mentioned that some drug offenses are from drug addiction, and yet instead of treating what we know is an illness, we used to, and now it looks like that there are some alternatives and we're moving in the right direction, but we used to just put people in jail and punish them for something that we should treat. Overall, when we look at mental health issues and how sentencing deals with that, there seems to be a lot of people in prison that have mental health issues that are not well addressed in prison, but that also possibly should never have been sentenced to prison and should have been sent to a mental health care treatment facility. Are we using prisons as completely ineffective mental health institutions? I think that's definitely a, a valid concern. So let me just say, though, that when we look at how many people are in prison, in particular for a drug offense, um, it's actually a smaller proportion of the prison population than a lot of people think. So um, if you look at the federal prison system, which has about 200,000 people in prison, almost half of that population is serving time for a drug offense. Um, so that's a really high proportion of that system. Most of those people are there for selling drugs. Now, many people who sell drugs also have substance use disorder and are selling drugs in order to sustain um, their own drug use and drug misuse. If you look at the state prison systems, and there's about 1.3 million people in state prisons across the country, it's only 15% of the population there that is serving time for a drug offense. So, um, And most of those people were in prison because they were selling drugs rather than using drugs. Now, the impact of the drug war is broader than that because many people who are there for other crimes, property crimes, even violent crimes uh, like, such as robbery or assault, it pertains to their drug use. There are very high levels of substance use disorder among people that are in prison and jails in the United States. So there's certainly, um, you know, the, the incarceration of these individuals either for selling drugs uh, and sometimes they're there because they violated terms of their community supervision because they tested positive for drug use or if they're there uh, for other more serious offenses that they might not have committed if their um, substance use disorder had been treated. Um, you know, this there's this is definitely a valid concern, and we definitely see a lot of people that are in prison that have other mental health issues, other serious mental health issues. Um, and 
it, you know, the, the, I just can't help but think that the very high levels of, um, uninsured populations in this country that have not had access to drug treatment, to mental health care, uh, contributes to the crime problems that we've had and contributes to, um, you know, the fact that we've been unwilling to invest in those kinds of uh, treatments and responses to these problems means that we've instead chosen to invest in incarceration as a way to handle these populations instead. So I'd like now to address uh, mandatory sentencing and mandatory minimums. And the first question there, I'd like to again talk about uh, drug laws. As I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that for federal drug crimes, the sentence is not based on a person's culpability, but strictly on the quantity of the drug involved, which seems a little crazy to me. It seems cruel and also just very myopic we're taking away a judicial function to look at aggravating and mitigating circumstances and a person's role in an offense. And I'm a little confused as to how we had a policy to do that and how it has been affected. It's one of the easiest ways to sentence somebody is to just measure the drugs that they have on them when they're caught and um, uh, and then, you know, sort of just apply that to a grid to see what the appropriate sentence would be. And that's how policymakers have designed our mandatory sentencing laws at the federal level. Now, judges do take into consideration an individual's role. So whether they were a carrier, um, a a street-level dealer, so kingpin, all these things, that does get factored in in deciding where in the guidelines they're going to place somebody. But the mandatory sentence, the level of the sentence that's triggered by law is uh, based on the quantity of drugs. And I guess the idea was that this would be a very shorthand, simple way of figuring out how culpable somebody is. But of course, someone who's driving um, with a car full of, you know, with a trunk, with, uh, you know, some drugs in their trunk um, is not necessarily as culpable as the person who's organizing an entire uh, drug operation, but is very careful to avoid having any drugs with them. So it is a very complicated situation. It is very problematic as well, where a lot of people who have very limited culpability are the ones that are, um, who have a very limited managerial role, role, level of authority in the drug trade are the ones who are most likely to be caught with the largest amount of drugs on them. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a problem. So it seems that these mandatory minimums and, and including three-strike laws that then provide a mandatory minimum offense for the uh, third strike, I, I remain perplexed how um, this legislative encroachment on the judicial function to assess proportionality with respect to a crime, does not violate the Eighth Amendment. Is your opinion that there's a constitutional violation with respect to mandatory minimums? Um, you know, I have. That's not really a perspective that I've pursued very much. But I, I the way that I've seen it has been to focus on uh, what the original intention has been and what the outcome has been. So the intention has was. Uh, to it was sort of a combination of two perspectives. One was a concern that if you were if you were brought into a courthouse in Iowa versus a courthouse in California, you, people were getting very different penalties if they were brought into federal courts. And the idea was to try to cr- 
uh, create more fairness and to make sure that people were equally treated regardless of which federal court they went to. So that was part of the reasoning. So if you got a lenient dr- uh, judge versus a much harsher judge, um, you know, the, the thinking was that you shouldn't have very different outcomes based on what day and what courthouse you appear in. Um, the other consideration at that time was among more tough on crime uh, policymakers was just making sure to increase the level of penalty. And so uh, so mandatory sentencing laws standardized sentences, and they also increased them at the same time. Um, the, I, part, another concern also that people had was it wasn't just the location, not just the judge, but also the race of the defendant would matter as well. And having a mandatory law would make it so that would even out these differences so that your skin color, your ethnicity wouldn't matter. Unfortunately, what we've realized, um, which we was predicted at the time, was that what these policies do is that they transfer discretion from judges to prosecutors. It's up to the prosecutor whether or not to uh, charge for an offense that carries a mandatory sentence. So it gives the prosecutor a huge deal of power. So it's been basically a shift in power from judges to prosecutors. Prosecutors can decide what kind of charges to bring. And if they bring forward charges that carry mandatory minimum sentences, they can um, threaten people with very long prison terms unless they accept a plea deal with them. Um, and the plea deal, the resulting plea deals that they've been able to secure, and over 90% of convictions are and, uh, and sentences are the result of plea, plea agreements, um, these plea agreements have ended up being much longer prison terms than in the past because they're able to threaten such long sentences as a result of the mandatory sentencing laws that are on the books. So in, in essence, prosecutors, if I'm understanding correctly, are coercing people into plea bargains so that they don't pursue their Sixth Amendment right to a trial. I think um, Michelle Alexander once made a point that if people resisted plea bargains, that the system might actually collapse because so many people, I think you just mentioned 90% accept um, plea bargains that the system might not be able to uh, handle everybody going to trial. And maybe that's something that we need to do. You know, that's, uh, I, I remember reading that op-ed that when Michelle Alexander wrote it, and I think it was with Susan Burton that she co-authored it. And it's a it's a wonderful idea to highlight the problem that we have in our criminal justice system, which is that uh Case processing looks nothing like when you watch a criminal justice show on television. So it's not about a you know, very lengthy trial for most people. Most people, it's about negotiating, having their defense attorney negotiate with the prosecutor and having the judge accept the agreement. Uh, that's typically how things work, except in the most serious cases where people go to trial for homicides, for example. But even then, they are encouraged um, and have every incentive to negotiate a plea deal with a prosecutor. Um, So having people resist that would indeed throw a big wrench into the criminal justice system and into the criminal justice process. However, people who resist it would face major uh, consequences. So, you know, it's about uh, many people will, for example, face the decision of, do I accept five years, 10 years of probation uh, and I get to live in my community with my family or do I go to trial 
and risk a 10-year prison sentence. That is a very difficult decision for many people to make, you know, in order to um, affect, you know, in order to challenge their case. It, it's a major risk. Um, so that's called, the, that's the trial pen penalty that many people avoid by taking plea offers. And it's a very difficult call to action um, for people to take up. I agree. It's easy for somebody to come up with an idea and say, hey, this is a great idea. This is what we should do and it will work. And then for somebody that faces the consequences to actually have to perform it. But what really is tragic is that it's a constitutional right to have a trial. And yet in practice, it's a penalty. Right. I mean, I, you know, I think that that's the idea of plea bargaining always that you, if, you know, that you would agree to some kind of a plea deal because you expect that it's better than what you're, the outcome that you're going to face at trial. The trouble is the kinds of sentences that you're uh, people are being threatened with now if they go to trial are just astronomical. And you see it sometimes when you see people, you know, the results of, a, um, you know, the sentencing result that someone faces as a result of having gone to trial. It's like decades and decades in prison. The, you know, the, these are not these are not durations of prison terms that we should even be thinking about. Um, you know, we should be thinking about prison sentences in terms of months, days, months, days, uh, maybe years, not decades and decades. But the, what's happened in the United States is that criminal penalties have been um, have increased so much for especially the most serious crimes. So, for example, right now, one in seven people in the United States is serving some kind of a life sentence. So either life with or without the possibility of parole or a sentence of longer than 50 years. And that's something that we found with our research at the Sentencing Project. So one in seven people in prison is serving a sentence like that. So when you have that many people serving such long sentences, then that can, contributes to making a 10-year, 15-year sentence for a drug offense seem not out of the ball, out of the ballpark. It makes a 20-year sentence for robbery seem reasonable. So our entire sentencing structure is completely skewed. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we at the Sentencing Project have been calling for and have recently begun a campaign to abolish life sentences um, in order to help bring some more sanity to the entire sentencing structure. We think that it would make sense for policymakers and for the public to realize that we should not be sending people to prison more than 20 years. 20 years should be enough time for someone to serve in prison for almost all crimes. One in seven people in prison are serving a life or virtual life sentence, right? Because say 60 years for somebody or 70, it's in effect a life sentence. If we have people serving life sentences, I mean, we don't even need any rehabilitation programs. We don't there's no, there's no way they're going to reintegrate into society because we're not going to release them. Therefore, prison conditions can worsen. It's just a, such a Stygian circumstance here. And I don't really see, again, any social benefit at all to this. Firstly, even if you have, say, somebody that's violent in their youth, statistically, that as you age, <laughs> you're going to have a, basically a negligible possibility to uh, commit violent crime in old age. And you're probably going to need medical care and increased costs to be in prison. Yeah, every way you slice it, it just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if you think it through, it doesn't make sense. People don't commit crime in very, in very old age. 
um, sending people to prison. There's a research is also clear and that very lengthy prison sentences don't deter crime. They do very little to deter crime because people generally don't expect to be caught um, or they're committing serious crimes in the heat of the moment. And so they're not factoring in like a rational actor what the consequences of their actions are going to be. Um, so the... That you, and it is the case that we have a growing elderly prison population. But the reason we've gotten to this place is that, you know, the crime spike that I mentioned, the homicide spike peak that we hit in the 1990s, many of those people are still in prison if they were co caught and convicted. Um, they're getting older in prison, but there, there have been victims' rights organizations, there have been various... Um, uh, constituencies that have really advocated for uh, keeping those warehousing those individuals behind bars forever. Um, part of the uh, the process that got us here has been um, moving away from the death penalty and moving instead towards life without parole sentences as an alternative. What's happened is that um, we've exercised that sort of policy muscle and moving towards life without parole as an alternative to the death penalty. But then policymakers and judges began to rely on life without parole more heavily, even for um, crimes that would not have resulted in the death penalty. Uh, and so that's the situation that we're in. It's sort of policymaking and sentencing out of emotion uh, rather than uh, through a reasoned evidence-based process. The cost of this is that we are imprisoning people into old age when it's very expensive to provide them with health care. If they were getting health care outside of the prison facility, first of all, they are likely to be in better health if they're outside of prisons than within prisons. Um, and it's just much more expensive to provide the level of security on top of the health care that they're getting if they're incarcerated. So we're spending money on that. Meanwhile, we're not spending money on things like um Increasing access to high quality early education. So, you know, universal preschool, for example, investing in job training programs, um, doing things like trying to reduce levels of residential segregation. These are things that we need to do to change the landscape in our society so that we can reduce crime rates in areas where they're unacceptably high. Um, but these are not the kinds of policies that we're pursuing. And instead, we're um, trying to make sure that we just throw a lot of money at imprisoning some people forever for crimes they committed 30, 40 years ago. It just makes so much sense, right? Preventative measures provide a social benefit and are economically more efficient, and yet uh, we just go for the punitive measure. I'd like to move to discussing three strike laws across the nation. Now, in California, we changed what was an absolutely ridiculous law in which um, the third strike really could be a wobbler. It could be something that the prosecutor could have pursued as a misdemeanor and therefore they wouldn't have gone to 25 to life in jail. Something for something silly as, I don't, I, I, and I'm not exaggerating here, I think a, one case was stealing a pair of socks and another case was using a fraudulent check to buy a slice of pizza. Now, California has changed that. Now, the third offense has to be, as I understand, a serious felony. But how are other states affecting three-strike laws? I understand that 28 states have repeat offender laws. So 
California is really, as I mentioned, a leader in reform, but it's also been a state that's been a leader in very tough on crime policies. And so it's three strikes law is an example of that. Now, if you look, for example, at the federal level, there's a federal three strikes law as well. The difference there is that at the federal level, there is no parole for people who get life sentences. So people who are convicted and sentenced under the three strikes law in the federal system will uh, will die in prison unless we change our sentencing laws um, to revise those those very harsh sentences. Um, a number of states have three strikes laws. It's not clear that they've pursued them as vehemently as California and have used them as 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 uh, to the extent that California has. Um, but three strikes laws, I would also just say, are another example of um, legislation that takes discretion away from judges. So it's a mandatory sentencing law, and it gives it to prosecutors. So prosecutors can decide when they want to bring a felony charge that's going to trigger a three strikes three strikes law. And one of the issues that we know is that mandatory sentencing laws and three strikes laws, as an example, are a kind of policy that contributes to racial disparities in the prison system. Um, and that's because a prosecutor, like most Americans, will have ra implicit racial biases and they're more likely to see an African-American or Latino defendant as more threatening than a white defendant. And they're more likely to bring, and been, has, research has corroborated this, they're more likely to bring uh, charges that carry mandatory minimum sentences, including um, three-strike sentencing among defendants of color than white defendants. So now I'd like to discuss private prisons. I understand that some contracts with private prisons require a certain bed quota to be met by the state or the state will, under the contract, incur a penalty, thus in, in effect incentivizing imprisonment and also that conditions in private prison are not as good as a normal prison, even though we have serious problems of conditions in state and federal prisons in any case. But which states have been the most welcoming of private prisons and how is accountability limited for private prisons, or is it? Okay, well, private prisons are an issue that really sort of boils the blood of a lot of people in the United States when they think about issues of mass incarceration. And I would say that that's correct, um, that we should be outraged by, by what private prisons are doing, but we should also be cautious in not overstating the the problem of private prisons. So let me explain what I mean by that. So um, private prisons have a lot of the problems that you mentioned. They lobby for harsher sentencing laws often. Um, they they sort of try to skimp and cut back as much as possible in terms of the programs they offer, in terms of the um, benefits and salaries for their staff. And so that makes it so that they don't have necessarily uh, the most tr experienced, trained, competent um, workforce of prison guards. Um, so those are some of the examples of private. They, they like to um, be selective in which people they place in their prison systems. And so they're more likely to opt to have white, uh, younger um, individuals uh, because their healthcare costs are lower. And so that makes it a more volatile prison environment if it's disproportionately young people. Um, so these are some of the problems of private prisons. And there's very well um, 
documented by states, by reporters, uh, by federal investigators, that private prisons do not end up bringing about um, substantial savings, but they do have worse outcomes often than publicly run institutions because of the because of the profit motive that they have um, that leads to them uh, cutting back on expenses that a public facility would not. So that those are the problems of private prisons. Now, on, in, in terms of getting a, 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 an accurate understanding of how much of a driver in mass incarceration private prisons are, uh, I would want for listeners to know that about 9% of people that are in prison in the United States are in private prisons. So for a lot of people, that's a surprisingly low proportion. Um, so 9% overall. So 23 states don't use any private prisons at all. But some states like New Mexico, for example, have 40% of their prison populations um, held in private prisons. In the federal prison system, it's almost 20% of people that are in federal prisons are in private prisons. Almost three quarter of the population that is being detained in immigration facilities, is in a private facility. So um, so that's sort of some of the contours of um, what the role of private prisons has been. Um, so I, I say that because I want to make the point that the problem that, of mass incarceration that we have in the United States has not been primarily driven by the goal of uh you know, securing uh, and expanding profits. That's definitely been part of it. Private prisons have been growing faster than public prisons in, in the last um, two decades or so. Um, private prisons have also, private prison companies like Geo Group, um, Core Civic, these are the two main ones, have expanded into other areas like community supervision. So when you hear about GPS monitoring, private prison companies have some role in that. Um, some of them have gotten into providing programs to people in public facilities, um, to reentry services when people are released. So, uh, so the so the scale of problem that they that they pose is beyond just the prisons themselves. But the problem of mass incarceration in the United States is largely a political one. It has largely been about um, people being scared and misinformed by policymakers to believe that we need tougher, um, longer prison sentences in order to address the crime problem. Um, that's largely what's been driving the problem, the issue of mass incarceration in the United States, not not as much um, the profit motive. Now I'd like to address the First Step Act because Congress may vote on it. And I think it's actually quite aptly named because it appears to be really just a small step, but in the right direction. And um, I wanted to get your opinion on it. Yeah. So as a as an organization, we at the Sentencing Project uh, are cautiously optimistic about the First Step Act and the impact that it can have on um, federal prisons and reform in general. So uh, we do see it basically as a baby first step. Um, in 2010, the uh, Congress passed the, um, the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity in sentencing between crack and cocaine. So it used to be 100 to 1 sentencing disparity. So uh, the same amount of prison sentence that you would get for having um a certain weight of crack cocaine, you would need 100 times that much weight of 
of cocaine, powder cocaine, in order to get that prison sentence. That disparity was reduced to, I believe it was 16 to 1 um, as a result of the Fair, first, um, the Fair Sentencing Act. One of the elements of the First Step Act is to make that reform retroactive, to apply it to people that were sentenced before the passage of that law. Um, that is one of the, that's a really critical element of the reform, um, of the, of the, of the potential reform that First Step Act would bring about. Um, in addition to that, the um, the bill calls for expanding programs um, so that people who participate in rehabilitative programs while they're incarcerated can be released earlier to halfway houses to um, so that they're spending uh, fewer days incarcerated and and are being um, are receiving more resources to help them get back on their feet when they're released. So those are some of the major reasons that we support this um, this bill. Now, it certainly doesn't go as far as we would like for it to go, um, but an earlier version of the First Step Act had no sentencing reform at all, and so we're very pleased that this version that's being considered does have some sentencing reform elements. Um, there are other concerns as well. There's uh, there's going to be uh, greater use on risk assessment. Um, there are concerns about whether the risk assessment tool that's going to be used is going to uh, is going to contribute to racial disparities and imprisonment in the federal system. So it is far from a perfect bill, but it's very important that it includes some sentencing reform elements and that it will demonstrate a willingness from uh, a, a Congress that's led by Republicans right now um, and a president that has been very, you know, uh, described himself as very tough on crime. Uh, so it's very important that they demonstrate a willingness to uh, reform sentencing um, and prison policies. So now I'd like to move to uh, felony disenfranchisement. So we're one of the only countries in the world that disenfranchises people convicted of felonies so that even after they leave prison, they, in essence, continue to serve their sentence because they're denied their civic rights and are essentially second class citizens not being able to vote. Uh, recently, we've had a, a fortunate victory in Florida with respect to felony disenfranchisement. But millions of people around the country continue to uh, not be able to vote years after they've served their sentence. What is the current state of felony disenfranchisement throughout the United States? And how does this disenfranchisement operate on a racial level? So we estimated at the Sentencing Project um, and with uh, colleagues in academia that in 2016, 6.1 million Americans couldn't vote because of a felony conviction. So that was about two and a half percent of the adult voting age population um, in total. If you look in particular at African-Americans, it's about almost seven and a half percent of the adult African-American population in the United States can't vote because of a uh, because of felony disenfranchisement policies in four states. And this is going to be changed a little bit as a result of the reforms that have happened recently. But the four states are Florida, Kentucky, Tennessee and Virginia. Over 20 percent of African-Americans were not able to vote in the 2016 election. Um, Virginia, the governor re-enfranchised a lot of people before leaving office in 2016. Um, Florida, of course, has changed its policy recently. So right now it's Kentucky and Tennessee that continue to disenfranchise 
over 20% of their voting age African-American population uh, because of a felony conviction. So there's really a range of how states uh, address this issue. In places like Maine and Vermont, people that are in prison can vote. Um, that's how it is for in many countries around the world. People can vote in prison. Being imprisoned has nothing to do with your ability to vote. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not how it is in most states in the United States. Um, and in addition to that, I think it's really notable to think that, to realize that most people that are disenfranchised as a result of a felony disenfranchisement policy are not in prison. So more than three quarters of that 6.1 million number that I said are not in prison. They fin they're either, uh, they've either completely finished their prison, probation, parole sentence, or they're under community supervision. So they're a population that we've decided they're safe enough to um, live in their communities, um, go to their jobs, but we're not letting them vote. It's hard to imagine that, uh, with a lot of our criminal justice policies, if the trends were reversed, and if if you, if I could tell you that 20% of white voters in in number of states are not able to vote because of a policy, it's hard to imagine that that would still be the case. That we wouldn't have, uh, you know, there wouldn't have been a hasty correction to that to that kind of egregious policy. So it, there has been. Um, you know, so it really does seem to be driven by the fact that the people disproportionately affected by um, mass incarceration in general, by felony disenfranchisement in particular, they're disproportionately African-American. And I think that that's made it uh, harder to, to, fix these, to fix these problems. So now I'd like to discuss reintegration and recidivism. I understand that when people are released from prison, they require a lot of aid to get back on their feet. And yet our policy is to deny them the very aid that they need to be able to reintegrate effectively into society. For instance, uh, con conviction for a felony makes you ineligible for public housing assistance and welfare assistance, um, which seems to be exactly what people require. What are some ways that we have uh, structured our laws and policies to um, basically encourage recidivism or at least discourage reintegration into society, whether it's an unintended consequence or not? Um, well, one of the ways is that we've made it very easy for employers to discriminate against people who have a conviction. So um, right now, if you apply for a job, an employer, you know, most many job applications, if you're filling out a job that has an application that you fill out, is going to ask about a felony conviction or any kind or sometimes even just ask about an arrest. Uh, a lot of times people report that if they have a conviction, a criminal history, when they fill out a job application, as soon as a manager takes a look at the form and sees that box checked off, they just throw out the application. Um, they don't even consider all the other things that that person is bringing to the table. They don't consider how long ago was that conviction. They don't consider, is it at all relevant to the job that they're applying for? So that's one way that it affects um, people's chances of being able to get back on their feet be, uh, once they're released from prison, or even if they didn't even go to prison, if they just have a felony conviction that they had a probation term for. Um, housing is another issue uh, that you mentioned where people have a hard time uh, 
applying for uh, apartments, for example, will ask about criminal histories and deny um, spaces to people that have a criminal record. So that really makes a housing search much harder for people. Um, and then there are a lot of special discriminations in place if you have, a, in particular, a drug conviction. So if you have a felony drug conviction, it, that makes it much harder to uh, qualify for food stamps and cash assistance um, once you're released. And that's a policy that disproportionately affects women, and in particular, women of color who have felony convictions. Um, so, so, and and then on top of that, there is the felony disenfranchisement issue that we t- we've talked about. So, these are some of the ways that uh, people continue to be punished, even when they are completely have served their time. Um, a thing, you know, even if they think that they've completely wrapped up the um, the penalties related to their offense, uh, there's still this lifelong punishment that they face. I, when I was living in California, I sometimes would volunteer at a expungement clinic. So helping people do the paperwork that they had to do in order to seal, uh, a, a misdemeanor conviction that they had. And I would talk to people and they would talk to me about, you know, when I, like an elderly woman would talk about how when she was very young, she had, uh, a conviction related to drugs and she's been sober for many years, decades. But for example, she has a hard time volunteering at her, at her granddaughter's school because of the conviction. So things like this that can, um, affect people, even though, you know, it happened so long ago, even though it's not an indication of what your life and lifestyle is right now, we don't have very many mechanisms in place to limit the what's what are considered the collateral consequences of a criminal conviction. And what's really troubling is that a lot of people don't necessarily realize that this this lifelong punishment is what they're signing up for when they accept a plea deal. When you accept a plea deal, often what's on your mind is, I need to get back to my kids. I need to get back to my job. If I sign here, I can get a couple years of probation. I can be released from jail and I can get back, resume my life. However, that record that's going to live with you, that's going to follow you, it's going to impact so many different aspects of your life. It's legal discrimination. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And with respect to not being able to get public housing assistance, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, not only do you not get public housing assistance, but people that have public housing assistance can't actually um, invite you over. So for instance, if you're leaving prison and you're not, you have no idea where you're going to go because they just release you and you want to go back to your family, uh, you might, if you do that, you might be subjecting them to eviction because they uh, might be violating the terms of their lease if they have federal housing assistance. Is that correct? That can happen. Yes, that's happened in the past. Um, but what's happened in recent years is the Department of um, Health and Human Services has clarified its policy that there are only certain kinds of drug convictions that they're concerned about. And so um, so some public uh, public housing offices have updated their um their guidances accordingly as a result of that. So um, what's been what had been happening is that a lot of public housing had actually been disqualifying people from accessing their um, their housing, even when they didn't need to. Sort of there was an overly broad interpretation of what the policy had been. That's a good start, I guess, but <laughs> we have a long way to go. Another thing that I'm I'm not exactly sure if this is how it works in practice, but I think there um, are multiple 
issues with parole that that lead to a very likely probability of recidivism. And I understand that we have a very high rate of recidivism in this country. For instance, criminal association, um, which also I I don't understand the social policy there. I mean, what if you accidentally meet someone or you go back to an area that had a a high rate of arrests and felony convictions and then (laughs) just because you live there and therefore you're taken to be associating with somebody that's also a felon, then you have to go back to jail because you're violating your parole or that you don't get a job in time, but then you're discriminated legally in the employment process. So it's just, how are we structuring laws to reintegrate people into society so they they don't go back to jail? It seems we're doing exactly the opposite here. Yeah. Um, if you were to you know, start the process from scratch and think about how to create a criminal justice system and sentencing policies and reentry policies that were evidence-based and sound in terms of what we know from criminological research, it would look very different from, you know, our system would look pretty much like very, <laughs> so many different things would be pretty much the opposite of how they are right now. But I appreciated your point about recidivism because we do have very high levels of recidivism. But what a lot of people don't realize is that when we say a lot of people go back to prison after a couple of years, we're not just saying that they're released and they commit crimes again and that sends them back to prison. We're also saying that we're putting them into prison, that we don't back to prison. We're sending them back to prison for things that we don't really need to do that for. We're sending them back because we're checking their, um, we're testing them for drugs and they've, you know, we find that they have marijuana in their system. We're sending them back um, because of these things that are considered technical parole violations. Like they missed a meeting with their parole officer because it was hard for them to get, take public transportation to the parole officer and get there on time, get, get sent back. And so they, they may have a altercation. They may have a, um, some kind of contact with the police officer. A couple of years ago, I remember I talked to a police officer who said, if I have any interaction with somebody who's on community supervision, if I talk to them for any reason, I'm going to write them up and send them back in because I, you know, I just shouldn't be talking to you at all. So that's, a, 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 you know, when we think about what are rules of evidence, what what about the presumption of, of innocence, those things really get cast aside when we talk about people that are on community supervision and what level of freedom they have. So what, luckily, what we've seen also is uh, a growing awareness from people that have worked even within the criminal justice system. Like, so for example, um, Vincent Chiraldi, who's re- led the Department of Probation in New York City for a while um, and has had other major roles um, as director of juvenile justice in uh, in D.C. prior to that. Um, and he has been working with um, other uh, other parole and probation directors to raise awareness of um, what he describes as a tripwire of community supervision, that when we send people back into communities, if we're just surveilling them for drug use, if we're just saying we want you to jump through these hoops, otherwise we're going to send you back to prison, we're setting them up for failure. And we're not, we're sending them back to prison for behavior that would not be perceived as criminal if they were not on community supervision. So, you know, we're not designing a process. You know, there are ways that we can move towards designing a process to help people succeed. Part of that is realizing that we have just too much, too much, too many arrests, too much sentences are too long, 
too much community supervision. Um, and we need to scale all of that back in order to let people succeed and just live their lives. So you mentioned we're setting people up for failure during the probation process, but it, it actually seems we're setting people up for failure from the very beginning by not having adequate social services. So when somebody has committed a crime, this is because we've ne- largely because we've neglected them. And instead of trying to redeem ourselves and rehabilitate them and provide them with adequate services to reintegrate them into society, um, we, we punish them and we fail them again by putting them into prison. And when we release them from prison, if we release them because of um, such high sentences and um, the propensity of um, life, of virtual life sentences, then we fail them again by setting them up for failure. Right. right. And I think it's for that reason that some people say, you know, they, they sort of uh, pause when they hear about the idea of giving people in prison a second chance, because the, as they point out, a lot of these individuals did not have a first chance. A lot of them did not finish high school. A lot of them did not live in uh, nurturing households where parents were able to provide them all the opportunities. And if they were not, then we had um, a social service sector that was able to kind of pick up the slack. That's not the that's not the community. That's not the kind of lifestyle that many people in prison um, came from. So, but on the other hand, I don't want to make it seem. Uh, too much of a doom and gloom situation because we have had problems of inequality and poverty for years and years, and yet, incredibly, crime rates have come come down since the 1990s. So it's really a tricky thing when thinking about levels of incarceration in the United States to try to make it uh, to make your thinking about incarceration levels as d- distinct as possible from crime rates because right now crime rates are half of what they used to be in the 1990s and yet imprisonment levels are well above what they were during that time so we don't need to end the problem of poverty and inequality um, in order to end mass incarceration. This is a point that Marie Gottschalk, who's a professor at University of Pennsylvania, has made um, that we, many people, uh, I think would be, you know, I guess most Americans would, would support the idea of addressing poverty and inequality they would just have very different ideas about how to do that, right? And so we want, we I think we all share a goal of achieving that, of reducing um, crime rates in certain communities where they're still unacceptably high. But we don't need to do that in order to end mass incarceration because already crime rates are so far below what they used to be at. Um, but we have not significantly reduced our prison populations to, to address the over-incarceration of people in the United States, we really just need to do a couple of simple things, simple to say, but not to actually carry out. We need to scale back the drug war. We need to send fewer people to prison and we need to keep them in prison for less time than we have been. It's just about changing the laws and policies that we have within the criminal justice system itself in terms of how it responds to crime. We don't need to solve, there is not a a crime problem that we have to solve right now in order to end mass incarceration. 
So as a final question, what are some alternatives to imprisonment for people that are convicted of offenses that currently require incarceration that have proven to be effective in uh, rehabilitating the offenders and providing for a smoother reintegration back into society? Great question. There are a couple of examples I have of policies that divert people away from prison um, and that could be really useful models for people around the country to follow. So one of them is uh, what's called the LEAD program. So that's law enforcement assistant diversion. Um, and that's something that first um, got kicked off in Seattle. A number of other cities uh, are also uh, implementing this as well. And what that program is about is to divert people from the criminal justice system when they contact the police. So uh, when a police officer is uh, handling someone who has substance use disorder or uh, if they are involved in um, uh, sex work, then those people, uh, the police would divert those people instead of arresting them would um, direct those people to social service providers that could help them. So that's one example where the diversion happens before someone enters the criminal justice system. Um, and so the police, are, you know, ideally their initial point of contact would not be the police, but at least in for people who the police might have arrested previously um, in some of these cities that have implemented the LEAD program, some of these individuals are being diverted into social services instead. Another example is um, drug courts. So drug courts um, have, uh, there are many of them around the country now, and um, they've they've weathered some criticism for not necessarily diverting people who would be going to prison, but actually bringing more people into the system. A um, number of drug courts have reformed their processes as a result of that feedback. And so ideally what a drug court would do is that somebody who would be prison bound would instead go through the drug court process and, and get receive access to treatment and be given many opportunities to fail without being reincarcerated because that's how um, treatment for substance use disorder would work. It's not just you get one chance and that's it. Um, so that's another example. A final example is restorative justice, the restorative justice model um, that a number of school departments are using to handle conflict. And in some cases, like in the Brooklyn DA's office, they've implemented a pilot program to do this for, um, for violent crimes as well, where the person who um, has committed an offense is brought together with the victim and they work out together what is an appropriate solution to what had happened. Uh, something that meets the needs of the victim um, and can help to prevent imprisonment for the person that committed the original offense. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, those are a couple different examples of efforts to um, divert people and find alternatives from imprisonment. But there are a number of examples also more generally in, um, in the work of policymakers, prosecutors, parole boards in realizing that what we need to do is just you reduce prison admissions and reduce prison sentence lengths. Um, and in police departments, either being forced to or recognizing that they need to move away from policies like stop and frisk, um, that they need to reduce their uh, uh, drug arrests in order to reduce the sort of flow of people going into the prison system. So sometimes what we need is not necessarily alternatives, but uh, just scaling back 
the work that that the criminal justice system does and uh, trying to work with other parts of government to fill in uh, and fill in and do some of the work. Well, hopefully we'll be doing more of those programs and moving away from a criminal law system that's focused on retribution to rehabilitation and reintegration. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Nazgul. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.